Thank you for listening to the Sharon Church Podcast. If you would like to know more about the church, please visit us at SharonChurch.com. Now we hope you learn from and enjoy today's message. Go ahead and grab your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 2 this morning. We'll be in Ephesians 2 verses 1 through 10. We're going to study this morning. Some of these verses are verses you've probably heard a lot in your life if you've grown up in church. We actually referenced one section of it a few weeks ago. As I've studied this week, whenever you study the Word of God, there's so many different things that come out and come to life. And, and part of my job as a, as a preacher, as a pastor, is to discern from the Lord what is it you have for us today through this passage. Because we could study this passage a year from now and it'd be something completely different that God has for us. And that's the beauty of it's like when you, when you look at a diamond and you see all the different sides and shapes and there's beauty everywhere. It just looks different depending on the angle and the way the light hits it. And the light has hit this passage for me in a way this week that I hope um, I'm able to communicate well um, to you this morning. Ephesians chapter two, verses one through 10. For us this morning as we continue our journey through the letter to the Ephesians. I don't know if you're like me, but um, I, I, love, I love sports. I particularly love to watch baseball. And there's nothing quite like for me being at a baseball game. I love being at a baseball game. I love, what I love about baseball, and I love football and basketball. I even like watching hockey from time to time and, and golf. And, but what I love about baseball, I love the slow pace of it. Like I love how all the pieces move a little more intricately. Um, it's not as brash and forward. It's just so subtle. And it's this chess game that happens. And I love watching baseball for that reason. But I love watching it in person, just the smell of the grass. I love hearing the crack of, of the bat on the ball. I love, I love the smell of a new baseball glove. I just I love all of those things. But the problem for me is whenever I go to a Braves game, um, the only tickets I can afford put me up towards the top of the Appalachian Mountains to see the game. Like I see from, I mean, 700 level, if that's a such thing. Like that's to, to get those tickets, especially for our family. You know how it is. You, if I buy my own tickets, I'm sitting up high, which is great because I'm still there to experience the game. I just, you miss something and I can kind of know what's going on because I've played baseball before. I'm familiar with it, but uh, you don't get the same experience. But then we have some friends of ours and particularly a friend who works for Chick-fil-A and every once in a while, he'll have tickets that he gives to us. This is my friend and that's in like the two or 300 level, which are, incredible seats. Like I thought these were the best seats ever. I just, I have to walk to a concession stand instead of hiking or rappelling down to one for my other seats. It's just easier to get to one. I, I can find a bathroom more easily and um, uh, people are nicer there. And, uh, but that, that, so I like that. I like that level. And I like it even the club seats, right? You got the box and you can go in and get popcorn and th- those are always fun. But about a year and a half, two years ago, a friend of mine named Ben Palmer, Ben uh, reached out and said, hey, I've got a couple of tickets from a friend of a friend or a father-in-law's business, something. Do you want them to the Braves game? I said, I mean, sure, what are they? He said, well, they're SunTrust level tickets. And I was like, let me Google that real quick because I have no idea what you're talking. Do I have to bank with them? How do I, is there like a loan or the fees if I don't come? And so, I mean, it's behind home plate and essentially just leather recliners, which is amazing. And they, you just order food and they bring it to you for free because you've paid for it as part of your ticket. Well, I didn't pay for it. A friend of a friend of a friend paid for that ticket. And, but then it gets better because then you get this pass and you get to go behind these doors and you go underneath the stadium. And it's like manna from heaven. It's just, there's all kinds, there's buffets. All you can eat anything. All you can drink anything down there. Prime rib, tacos, chicken fingers, nachos, 
ice cream in the helmet cups, like as many as you want, you just go and get them. It's incredible. And Meredith and I, and Meredith loved it because she's, she's not, she likes going to, she likes doing things with me, but it would be her preference to go sit through a baseball game. But if she gets to go get ice cream, she's fine. Yeah, let's go do that. Or we can go down where it's not as hot in the air conditioning and sit and have a date while the game is on. And I mean, it's just, it's, it's amazing. But the problem for me is now when I want to buy myself tickets to go to the Braves game, I realize how much of a diva I am because I don't wanna sit up there again. Those are not my people. <laughs> these people, like the ones that rule the world, these are my people. These are the ones that make enough money for this. This is, this is who I am. I'm gonna be here from now on. I'm gonna be eating my prime rib watching Freddie Freeman hit a double off the right center field fence. That, that's what I'm gonna do. Enough of the bringing my own stuff in, having to carry my own trash down. I got these people carrying my stuff. But what I've noticed is, maybe you've noticed this if you've fans of the theater or um, even church, whatever it is, wherever you sit is going to change your experience of that moment, right? Wherever you sit somewhere changes your experience. Now, I, before I sat down at the SunTrust level, I was fine with, with my upper deck seats. I was even more fine with my 200 level seats that a friend gave me. But if I'm gonna be given tickets to the SunTrust level, I'm, I'm gonna take that because that it's just a better experience. It just is. I'm more intimately aware of what's happening. Like I can smell the grass, I can see the dirt, I can smell the gloves, I hear the crack of the bat better. I hear the words that those men are saying that my children should not be hearing from this close. I, I hear, like I see all of that, I see what they're chewing on. I thought it was bubble gum, it's not bubble gum. So this is, these are all the things that when you're, the perspective, it changes the experience. And for some of our seats, we're more intimately aware of what's actually happening. I see the third base coach giving signs. I hear the coach telling his players where to position themselves. I can see it all happening. And it's the same way for us when it comes to following Jesus, that where we sit, it's gonna shape our perspective, which shapes our experience of what it is to follow Jesus. So in Ephesians chapter two, Paul is going to give us 10 verses of just brilliant theological um, expertise. In fact, chapters one through three of Ephesians are thick in doctrine and theology. Then verses four through, or chapters four through six are gonna tell us then how do we live that out? What does this mean for us? And this passage in chapter two, um, where God has kind of lit up the passage for me this, this week, it's gonna take us to a place of understanding where as followers of Jesus, we actually sit where we are meant to experience both salvation and the hand of God in our lives today. So let's, let's do that. Let's go to Ephesians chapter two. Remember from Ephesians chapter one, basically the crux of Ephesians one is that God did everything, we did nothing. Like God is all powerful, God is sovereign, God is in control, and God is loving and kind in his love for us. This is chapter one. So then uh, I'm just gonna walk through verse by verse, verses one through 10 of chapter two. I'm gonna give us just three points of, of kind of application and then we're gonna pray and, and walk through some, some announcements. But we're gonna walk through verses one through 10. So if you wanna take notes, that's where we're gonna do it. It's not gonna be a lot on the screen this morning as much as we're just gonna study the word of God. So Ephesians chapter two, verse one, I'm reading from the ESV, the English Standard Version, and it reads this way. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. Some of your translations would say, start off with as for you which is a really cool translation because Paul has just said in, verse, in chapter one, here's what God has done for your salvation. And then Paul starts off in chapter two with, oh, and here's what you did. As for you, here's the role you played. 
And then Paul's making the point, God did all of these things. As for you, you were dead. He's gonna just drive this point home. God did all these amazing things and here's what you contributed. Oh, you were dead. Paul's continuing to make the point that God is the one who meets us and rescues and pursues us. We simply, by the grace of God and the gift of faith, can respond to that. And Paul's saying, you were dead. He doesn't say you were sick, doesn't say you were bad, doesn't say you needed help, you were dead. The actual Greek word there is you were a corpse. You were a corpse in the trespasses and sins. Trespasses meaning rebellion, and then sin meaning just um, kind of a miss the mark or a misfire. You were dead, you were a corpse. Here's what you contributed to your salvation. Here's what God did, and as for you, you did nothing. You were dead in the trespasses and sins. Verse two, in, once, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. We're gonna pick apart verse two here. If you circle and write, I would circle the word walked here. We're gonna come back to this word. If you wanna go down to verse 10, you can circle the word walk in verse 10. We're gonna see Paul is brilliant in the way that he writes. So he's gonna give us verses one through three about who we are, like our contribution to our salvation. Then verses four and five, maybe even into six and seven are the hinge on which this passage is gonna turn. And then it's gonna show us what our life was like since or post Jesus. So we've got BC in verses one through three, and then we've got AD for us in verses like seven, eight, nine, and 10. Does that make sense? So verses one and two, Paul's telling, or verse one through three, he's telling us what we've contributed. You were dead, you were dead. You were a corpse in your rebellion in which, you, in which you once walked. Some of your translations say you lived. The Greek word is walked here. And the idea of walking is it's not running, it's not skipping, it's not sprinting, it's not dancing, it's not mall walking. It's not that. It's just literally one foot in front of the other. We're not trying to speed walk with our fanny pack. We're one step in front of the other. Before Jesus, we kept walking in sin and rebellion. We kept walking. In deadness, we just kept walking. And what, if you've ever walked before, what you realize is the further you walk, the further you get away from where you started. We continue, before we knew Jesus, we continued to walk, following the course of this world. This word course is the idea of an age. So think um, in your history classes, a medieval age, like there's an age of time following the age of this world. And so an age is like a period of time, but it also means all of the practices and characteristics of that time. It's not an era, it's an age. So before we knew Jesus, we followed the age, the customs of this world, of the world, following the prince of the power of the air. This is a direct reference to Satan or the enemy here. I want to make a few things clear. When he says the power of the air, this has been used and twisted to talk about um, like media, airwaves, like radio, TV, um, music, that type of thing. And while I completely agree, the enemy is an expert in leveraging those things. This is not what it means specifically. And here's what it means. This idea of air um, is the idea of everything below the clouds. So for a Jewish reader or a Jewish person at the church at Ephesus, and the church is made up of Jewish uh, believers and Gentile or non-Jewish believers, so Paul's speaking to both. But there, in this time, there was an understanding of three different um, 
heirs or three different levels, three, uh, three different heavens, essentially. So everything below the clouds is this word, air, and it's actually spelled A-E-R uh, in the Greek. And that's this, like everything below the clouds. So everything that happens in quote unquote real life would be considered the air. And Paul is saying, before we knew Jesus, we were dead in our uh, rebellion and in our sins, and we followed how this world works. We just walked how this world worked. And we followed the enemy, who is the prince of the power of this air, so of the lower level. So we've got air here, and then the second level is what we would call the universe. It's, it's the stars, cosmic things. That's, that's what this middle level, level or layer is. And then the third one up at the top, Paul calls it a third heaven in one of his letters. This is referring to what we're gonna call the heavenly places. So the third era, the third air, the third heaven is where spiritual things happen. It's where God is and where Jesus is seated at his right hand. And it's also where spiritual warfare happens up here in this third level. We'll get to that in Ephesians 6, but it's this upper, upper level, okay? So keep that in mind. Paul's saying before we followed Jesus, all we knew was this lower level of air. All we knew was from the clouds down. And we followed the age of this world. We followed the behavior and customs of this world following the enemy. Does that make sense? So we, we just followed what we knew and all we knew was this. It's all that we could see in front of us. Think about, um, think about infants. All they know is that they have to eat and go to the bathroom. That's all they know. So that's all they do. And it's all they ask for in the only way they know how to ask for it. As infants, we only know this. Um, your elementary school child only knows elementary school things. They think they know more things, but they only know elementary school things. They're seeing the world through the elementary school um, air. So before we knew Jesus, all we knew was this. He continues and calls it the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So we followed the prince of the power of the air, the spirit, the breath, the wind that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Then verse three, among whom we all once lived. So we all, um, literally means we all, and he's speaking to Jews and Gentiles there. Um, but for me, I think we need to understand this, and here's what's happened for me a little bit this week. I gave my life to Christ when I was just five years old, maybe not even quite five. Um, a plumber by the name of Jim Dunn taught my four and five-year-old uh, Sunday school class, shared the gospel with me. At that time, God compelled my heart to follow Jesus. It wasn't because I was afraid of hell. It wasn't that. It was because I actually was like, oh, this Jesus sounds amazing. I want, here's what he's done for me. I want to follow him. I went home, told my parents. Uh, we had an oak dresser painted like Smurf blue in my bedroom, knelt on my knees with mom and dad and gave my life to Christ at the age of five. So what's been hard for me as a follower of Jesus who's been following Jesus for 35 years, sometimes faithfully, sometimes not faithfully, is that I don't know a BC for me. Like I don't, I don't have the stories of radical redemption. I don't have the rescued from drug abuse. I don't have that kind of stuff. And I lived in a great home with good parents who loved the Lord and took us to church and served well and all the things. I don't, I don't know that. And if you're like me, here's what we're gonna have to understand from this passage. When it says we all, at the age of four, the sin nature in me was the same sin nature in Jeffrey Dahmer. It's the same sin nature in a rapist and a murderer. 
Just because I hadn't aged out of my own type of behavior doesn't mean the nature was any different. Does that make sense? I had the same depraved heart in me. You see it in your kids. You know it's in them. So we all, we all carry the residue, the effects of the power of the air. This is not in my notes. I'm gonna talk about it for a little bit. Um, the reason why you and I struggle with sin right now is that we're in between these two worlds. We're in between heaven where everything is perfect and the garden where everything was perfect. And we live here, we live here where the ruler of the air is the one ruling right now. And when we give our lives to Jesus, heaven comes in and begins to overlap our hearts, begins to overlap because we are citizens of heaven, but we live on earth. And so there's a battle for our souls going on. It's why you feel convictions, why Paul would say, I do the things I don't want to do, but it's like I don't do the things I do want to do. What is going on with me? So even me, I gave my life to Christ at five. Um, I've made my life more colorful since then. Like I've, I've found, I found my sin nature, I found it. I found it hard and it's there. So we have to understand we were all doing this. We all lived in the passions of our flesh. None of us has any right to sit above anyone else. The ground is even at the foot of the cross. We all lived, and here's how Paul characterizes the power of the air. We lived according to the passions of our flesh. We wanted to please ourselves. We carried out the desires of the body and the mind. This is how you know. This is how you know if you're following the prince of the power of the air. Everything's about you. It's about your comfort and how you feel and your safety. This is what it means. So before we get too far and we begin thinking, well, what about the good people that do good things? I would just say this to you. The desire of their heart is no different than the desire of the quote unquote evil person. You can still do good things with evil intention. In fact, Paul would tell us that even our righteous acts, before we knew Jesus, our righteous acts, our good works were filthy rags to him. Just dirty, disgusting, filthy laundry. So even people, before they knew Jesus, who are doing good things and saving the world and rescuing babies, they still have the passion of the flesh. They're just satisfying it differently. Then Paul continues, and it just gets worse from here. And we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So, so we don't like talking about in church. Before we knew Jesus, and this morning, if you're here and you don't know Jesus, and this is not meant to scare you or scare the hell out of you. It's not what this is. We were, before we knew Jesus, we were objects, children of the wrath of God, deserving of eternal punishment. And hear me in this. It is not that God sends people to hell. We have already sent ourselves there. According to John chapter 3, 17, we have condemned ourselves and God rescues us. Just by our nature, by being born into sin through the sin of Adam, we are objects of the wrath of God. He has every right to pour out all of his wrath on us. His wrath is a pent up kind of a wrath. Before we knew Jesus, we followed the prince of the power of the air and the sons of disobedience. We just walked. It's all we knew was this air. And because of that, we were objects of the wrath of God. We were children. We were recipients of the wrath of God, just like everyone else. And then the hinge in verse four, the two most powerful words in the Bible, but God. 
So Paul's making the point here in verses one through three. We were dead, we were corpses, we were evil with no way of getting good. We um, were objects of God's wrath. We had every right to have the wrath of God poured out on us, but God. And this is where any of our works-based gospel falls apart. God had to do something. Like it was that bad, the creator of the universe had to do something. And he doesn't send a deputy. He comes himself as Jesus. But God, gives us the character of God, being rich in mercy. If grace is getting things that we don't deserve, uh, mercy is God holding back the punishment that we do deserve. He's rich in mercy. He is wealthy in mercy. Because of the great love with which he loved us. And Paul's gonna always give you the because. He's rich in mercy, why? Because he has great love for us. He's not rich in mercy because he has to be, because that's what his job description says, because that's what he signed up for. No, because he loves us. Verse five, even when we were dead in our trespasses. So he had love for us even in our deadness. He didn't love us when we got cleaned up. He doesn't love a future version of you. He doesn't love a a better, more well-rounded version of you. He doesn't love a version of you who doesn't sing ACDC anymore. He loves you. While we were dead in our trespasses, dead in our rebellion, he uses the word rebellion. While we were dead in our rebellion, in our outright fighting against God, he made us alive together with Christ. Even when we were dead, he made us alive. So notice what's happening. Paul begins with, as for you, or in you, you were dead. And God, even when we were dead, makes us alive. There's a contrast happening. Made us alive together with Christ. So the same resurrection that Christ experienced, we have, re- have experienced. And this word with is not beside or next to. This is intimate, like an intimate withness. Together with Christ, and Paul gives this like preview of where he's going. By grace you have been saved. Keep that in mind. I'm gonna come back to that. By grace you have been saved, he says. Verse six, and he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So oftentimes, this is where the church, we're pretty bad about either we stop at the cross and we say, well, the cross, yes, the cross is central, But from the cross comes all sorts of blessing and inheritance. And it begins with resurrection, which is why Easter is so important. Because resurrection is post the cross. The cross took care of sin. The resurrection gives us life. And then Jesus is ascended. This idea that we've been raised up and seated with him, it's this idea that we too have been given an ascension to be seated in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus. And if you're a follower of Jesus this morning and your story has stopped at the cross, you are missing out on some of the best inheritance gifts that God has to offer us. It can't stop here. It gets better. And it gets better with new life. And then if you're stuck there, here's my hope for us this morning. We need to understand it goes further than that. God has ascended you. He has raised you up. And look where you're seated with him, the idea of intimate, not next to him, but in him. 
The same way that a dad would sit his son on his lap and then share his binoculars with him or um, show him the view that he is seeing. This is what it means. You're not next to seeing something close to what Jesus sees. You're seeing exactly what he sees and we're seated in the heavenly places. Remember, the ruler of the air, the universe, heavenly places. So I don't know if maybe you, you're fond of your hometown and then maybe McDonough is not your hometown or Locust Grove, Covington. Maybe this isn't your hometown. Maybe your hometown is somewhere else and you're fond of that. Or maybe you went to college somewhere. Maybe you went to Georgia and, and for you, Athens feels like home. And you would say things like this. You would say, I live in McDonough, but my heart is in Athens. I live in McDonough, but uh, my heart is in Dallas. Maybe you have children who have moved away and and they took a piece of your heart. So you would say, I'm living here, but my heart is in New Jersey. What Paul is saying is this, is that we live here, but our hearts are up here. Does that make sense? We experience life here, but our hearts and the eyes of our hearts are in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Our perspective has changed. So it's not that the things and the rule of the power, not that these things have changed for the Christian. There's still suffering. There's still pain. There's still a sin nature. Um, there's still betrayal. There's still rebellion. There's still cancer. There's still um, death. There's still um, illegal. Like all these, they're still here. It's not that that has changed It's just that we don't see it from here anymore. We see it from here. We don't follow the prince of the power of the air. We don't follow the spirit of darkness now. We have different eyes. He's gonna give us the reason here in verse seven, so that, for this reason, that in the coming ages, so we follow the prince of the power of the air of this age, right, the age of this world, but there's coming other ages, And in these other ages, God, he seated us in the heavenly place that God might show his incomparable or immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So he's gonna reveal things to us and that's why he's raised us up to the heavenly places. The things that God wants to reveal through Jesus, the things that he wants to reveal in coming ages cannot be seen from here from the air. It can only be seen from the heavenly places. In much the same way that me at a Braves game, if I buy my own ticket and I sit in the upper deck, the things that are happening on the field cannot be revealed to me from that perspective. I can only see the field from the field. I can only see the intimate behavior, the intimate interactions, the the smells and the fields. I can only do that when I have the right seat. And Paul says that God has seated us in the heavenly places that he might reveal to us the immeasurable riches of his grace. Verse eight, Paul's gonna remind us, for by grace you have been saved through faith. What he's saying is God wants to show us grace. He wants to show us the immeasurable riches, immeasurable riches of his grace, the inexhaustible riches of his grace, his grace that never runs out. Because that's the grace through faith that has saved us. But we can't see it from the air. We have to see it from the heavenly places. And then Paul says, this is not your own doing. He's just gonna keep beating this drum because Paul has a testimony that is evidence of this. 
This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. And the scholars would tell you this gift refers back to the word faith. What is the gift? Well, it's faith. Grace, that word grace already means gift. God has even given us the gift of faith that we might receive his grace. Verse nine, not a result of works so that no one may boast. We're in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus. We can't boast. Boasting happens in the air, not the heavenly places. Then verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand. Uh, This is, if you've only memorized verses eight through nine, again, you're missing out here. Like if we've memorized eight through nine and that's the, that's the cross, then we've missed the resurrection, the ascension. And here, this is, where it gets, this is where it gets really, really powerful for us. We are his workmanship. Some of your um, translations uh, might say his masterpiece. We are his handiwork, some say. It's the Greek word poema, where we get the word poem from. That kind of a masterpiece. What's different in art about uh, poetry is that poetry has no rules. Every other kind of art has rules. Music has rules as far as tempo and chord structure and notes, and you can't really create music outside of those things. You can create bad music, but it's still music because you're using these elements. Um, uh, Painting has rules as far as color scheme and medium. Watercolor only uses this kind of paint. When it comes to poetry, there are no rules, which is why I hated high school English. Because I was told to memorize a poem which just sounded like words put together out of random, like draw words out of a hat. Here, read this poem and memorize it. What? And the teacher would say, well, it's a poem. And I would say, well, why is it a poem? And she would say, because a poet wrote it. And I would say, why is he a poet? And she would say, because he called himself a poet. I don't know. Because poetry can rhyme if it wants to. It can have rhythm if it wants to. Or it can just be a smattering of mumbled words if you're rapping. That's what it can also be. And it's still like, that's still called Poetry, what tells us this is that God had no rules when he created us. He didn't have to adhere to certain things. So how we were created is how he meant to create us. It's not a coincidence or a mistake or an accident. Psalm 139, we were fearfully and wonderfully made. We were knit together in our mother's womb. We are his workmanship. We've been created how he meant to create us. And we are, again, his prized possession. So it's not that he would mess up and say, look at what I made. I mean, it's beautiful. But again, this isn't about you. This is about the master. This is about the artist. This says we were created in Christ Jesus. So before the foundation of the world, when you were chosen, when God had called you to know him, he created you in Christ Jesus. He created you with something else in mind for good works. He created you for good works. And this last phrase is super important, which God prepared beforehand. Sometimes I feel like... um, God doesn't know what he's doing because he puts me in situations where I don't know what to do. And there are things that I feel like I have to do that I have no idea how to do. Here's the power of Ephesians 2, verse 10. God, you have to, this analogy goes, only goes so far, but God wrote a script, right? He wrote a play. And he wrote the script in such a way that in this one act, there are good works that need to be done. And he created, he even did the works. He just wrote it up. And because he had this written, so beforehand he created works. Even before he created us, he had works that needed to be done. Then he writes us into the story. But he is the writer. He is the author. He's the poet. So he writes us in as the character he needs us to be with what we need to have to accomplish the work he wrote in this act. Does that make sense? 
It's not that God created us and he gave us certain giftings, certain um, struggles, and then said, oh, no, now I need something for them to do. I will make him an accountant. And then he makes you an accountant. No, he makes this office and then he makes this accounting firm and then he has a particular niche in which needs to happen. And then he goes back and in, in your mother's womb, he knits together an accountant and he gives you the ability to handle numbers and see numbers and look at a matrix and do all those things and put numbers together and finances. And then what he does in your nature then is he creates your nurture. And in your nurture, he places you in a home environment where those things are either cultivated through school or your parents, or they aren't, but you just love them so much. And he's placed you in a time in which you can retain that information and Google and learn information. And then you somehow, by the sovereign hand of God, end up in this act of this play at this accounting office. This is the sovereignty of God. This is what it means that God's prepared good works beforehand. And verse 10 tells us that we should walk in them. So we used to walk according to the course of the world, according to the age of the air, but now we are to walk in the good works of a heavenly place perspective. And notice, it doesn't say you have to run them, you have to dance in them, you have to master them. You just have to walk in the good works God has for you. So our view from the heavenly places is gonna change some things for us. First of all, it changes how we see our past. From the heavenly places, we can look back on our past and we can understand, according to Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, that first of all, God has been at work. He knitted you together and he put you in environments to cultivate something. And some of our past, God intentionally has used to bring about some kind of redemption or some kind of gift or some kind of fear that would hold us back that's gonna place us where we need to be. It shapes how we view our past. It also changes in our past how we view our sin. If you're like me, the problem for me when I look back on my sinful behavior is I can either minimize or I can maximize it. It either wasn't that bad or I'm the worst person that's ever lived on the face of the earth. But here's what Paul would tell us in Ephesians chapter six about our past, about sin. Verse 12, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. You wanna know why you sinned in the past? Because you were predisposed to it and the enemy fought a war for you. The enemy battled God for your heart and your soul in those moments. And in some of those moments, our nature gave in. And you wanna know why your ex-husband hurt you? You wanna know why your wife betrayed you? Do you want to know why your children are the way they are? Why your boss lied to you? Why you got swindled out of that money? It's because there's a spiritual battle going on and there's evil ruling the day right now. And sometimes, sometimes our nature gives in to the evil and evil wins out. And evil might win the day, but evil never wins the war. So when we look back on our sin, please see it from a heavenly place. When you see the sins of others, please see it from a heavenly place. There's a war being waged. Secondly, our view from the heavenly places changes how we see our pain. We don't like this. I talked about it last week that God shouts to us through our pain. It's his megaphone to rouse a sleeping world. God, if we see it from a heavenly perspective, there are a few things to learn about our pain. 
One is that it's fleeting, it's momentary. It's not eternal. Pain is not eternal for the believer. It's momentary. And secondly, according to Genesis chapter 50, God takes what the enemy meant for evil and he turns it for our good. But it shapes how we view our pain. Are you in the pain? Are you suffering today? Have you suffered in your past? From a heavenly perspective, we can see that God is at work. You are his workmanship. You are his poem. You are his masterpiece. He hasn't messed up. He hasn't left you alone. But he's working something in you. But Paul would tell us in 2 Corinthians 4, he said, we do not lose heart. Though our inner self, our outer self is wasting away. You might feel like your outer self is wasting away. Like I wake up now just sore for no reason. I'm not doing anything active. And yet I'm sore from just breathing, I guess. Our outer self is wasting away, but our inner self is being renewed. But look at this, day by day. Here's the problem. I want my inner self to be renewed once and for all. I like that language Paul uses better than day by day. But day by day, our inner self is being renewed, step by step. For this light and momentary affliction, Paul says in verse 17, for this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal glory or weight of glory beyond all comparison. This momentary pain, I know, I know it feels like your whole life has been pain and for 40, 50 years it's been pain of a relationship, um, pain of a struggle, pain of a sin, pain of an addiction, but compared to the weight of glory, it's momentary. Because from a heavenly perspective, from the heavenly places, we see it. Verse 18, and it's, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the unseen. If you're in pain this morning, I wanna challenge you in this way. Stop looking at it from the air and look at it from the heavenly perspective where things are unseen. Verse 18, for the things that are seen are transient. They're fleeting. They're here today and gone tomorrow. But the things that are unseen, well, they're eternal. They are forever. And eternal carries a weight of significance too. Not just that they last forever, but they matter forever. So the glory of God through your pain far outweighs your pain. And I need it today too. Finally, our view from the heavenly places changes how we see our place. So if God has actually prepared us, we're here to work for us beforehand that we should walk in them, Paul's not done talking about it. In Acts chapter 17, Paul's talking with philosophers on a hill called Areopagus, and he's in Athens, Greece, and they wanna have a conversation about the unknown God. These people in Greece and Athens have been worshiping, and Paul's gonna tell them, this is Jesus you're speaking of. So he talks about him in Acts 17, verse 26. He says, um, and he made, God made from, every, from one man, every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, Having determined, he continues, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. So it's not just that you were knit together in your mother's womb and that God used the nature of Genesis 50, what was evil, he turned it for your good. It's not just nature and nurture, but now we're gonna talk about the fact that even the time in which you live is a sovereign plan of God. God could have had you live in any other age. He could have, had you live when Jesus was walking on the earth. He could have had you live when there were dinosaurs. He could have had you live in the medieval times. He could have you living when the Jetsons live and we can just fly to work and have robotic maids. He could have done that, but he chose now for you because he had prepared you in your mother's womb for now. 
And so what God has done in this season of coronavirus and um, uh, riots and social justice campaigns, in the midst of all that, what he has done is he has created a people to live specifically in this age. And he chose now for you and he chose now for me. And not just did he choose now and the time, he also chose where you would live. He chose the boundaries of your dwelling place. He chose that you would live in McDonough, Georgia, Covington, Georgia, Locust Grove, Georgia in 2020. He chose that for you. You thought it's because you got a job transfer, you wanted better schools for your kids, it was all you could afford, but God was using all of those pieces to get you into this scene of this play at this time. And he chose your neighborhood and he chose your neighbors and he chose the person next to you at the cubicle and he chose the person on your Zoom meetings. He chose your boss. He chose your principal. He chose the teacher of your children. God determined that. And why? Well, according to verse 27, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel like a blind person would feel their way toward him and find him. Why? Because he is actually not far from any of us. So a heavenly, per, heavenly place perspective reframes how we see our place. It reframes how we see our neighborhood. It reframes uh, why God gave you the neighbors that you have and why he gave you the children that you have or don't have and why he gave you the parents you have and the coworkers you work with. Because according to Ephesians chapter two, verse 10, there's good works here. He's created you to walk in those works. And that's not out of guilt or obligation. That's a privilege and a gift of being ascended to the heavenly places. You can see it. If you would just bow your heads and close your eyes as we kind of process through some of this this morning. For some of us this morning, um, we haven't even stepped out of the power of the air. Like all we can see is from the ground level. And we've seen things and we think something's happening. We're just not sure what's happening. Well, sometimes in the common grace of God, he'll give us glimpses of the heavenly place that he might stir our hearts towards him there. So maybe this morning you feel trapped by the prince of the power of the year. You feel enslaved to sin and darkness. And it's by God's grace that he's opening your eyes to that this morning. And maybe this morning, it's the time for your salvation, the time for your resurrection, the time for you to be ascended to the heavenly places with your heart. And so maybe this morning, um, you just need to confess to the Lord. I, I'm a sinner. I, I'm dead in my sins and trespasses. I've tried to work my way out, but I'm realizing that I'm dead and I need life to be breathed into me. And you would confess that. You'd admit that you need him, believe that Jesus is the savior you've been waiting for and confess that he is the one that you would follow him with your life. And maybe that's you this morning that you just, you want to give your life to Jesus. He's calling you to the heavenly places. If that's you, maybe in courage and in boldness, you'd wanna raise your hand and just let us know that that's what's happened. That's what God is doing at the end of the service, Jeff will be over here to my left with AJ. And if you want to talk about that salvation, about the gift of, of salvation, we'd love to talk with you further about it. I would imagine many of us, though, in the room, our, our story is that we need a shift in perspective. Listen, somebody has bought tickets for you. And you keep buying your own in the cheap seats. There's a better way to see the game. There's a better way to see the world. 
There's a better perspective, a better view from the heavenly places. And like the, the Israelites being rescued from slavery in Egypt, we're tempted to want to go back to where it was safer. We feel safer at the air. And I get that. But from the heavenly places, man, it's a better view. Seated with Jesus. So maybe you this morning, you've realized that you've been seeing the world from the air when you have a seat in the heavenly places. So maybe by means of confession and boldness, you would raise your hand and say, yeah, would you, would you pray for me that I would see the world from a heavenly place perspective? I wanna see my pain from there. I wanna see my place from there. I wanna see my past from there. God, I pray for this morning, I pray for our people, I pray for my own heart. When I'm tempted to go back to the air, I'm tempted to go back to the ruler, the prince of the air, God, would you remind me that I'm yours and you seated with, with me with you in heavenly places. May I see our world from, from the heavenly places. May I see my sin, may I see my suffering, may I see coronavirus, may I see um, the presidential election, may I see my church, may I see my wife and my kids from a heavenly place this morning. God, would you reroute my perspective? And for those in the church who express the same thing, who just, we, we wanna see things differently, God, would you open our eyes to where you've seated us? In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Church, may you go in grace this morning, the grace of the Lord Jesus who has called us and given us work to do in his grace. You are dismissed. Have a great week. Love you.